invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. We have a shorter passage this morning, looking at five verses, first section of this chapter. Revelation, as we've seen, is a book of contrasts. Right, there's a, the dark in Revelation is, is quite stark. And then the, the light is, is very bright. Right, there's just this massive contrast, and it frequently shifts between the two. And so this morning, we come to uh, another abrupt transition in the book. After visions of a fierce dragon and his beasts persecute the church, we now see the need to be reminded of the victory that belongs to the Lamb and those who conquer with the Lamb. And so this passage, verses uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 14, stand in sharp contrast to the previous passage in chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. So last week we saw how the, the false prophet promotes counterfeit worship of the beast he sets up an image of the beast and deceives those who dwell on the earth to worship that image. And not only to worship the image, but then to identify themselves with the beast, right? Taking upon themselves the mark of the beast, uh, 666. And we talked about how counterfeit worship is being promoted by that false prophet so that it's abundant, right? We look around today and we see counterfeit worship is everywhere, Everyone, in fact, is worshiping something or someone at all times, even at this very moment, whether they're in church or not. You in your seats are worshiping someone or something at this very moment, at all times. And that's always been the case, right? We are overwhelmed by this vast number of counterfeit gods that exists inside and outside the church, and it can feel like we're really fighting a losing battle. Right? There's just such an abundance that we might as well just hunker down, right? Get, start building that bunker under your house. Find a way, a way to escape it all, because that's the only way you're going to survive. And what, do, what do you'll find under there is idols of your own making. Right? You'll, you'll make other idols to worship. You, you won't be able to get away from it. According to Gallup, weekly church attendance in America is down from 30% in 2012 to 22% in 2018. It's a pretty swift decline in a matter of six or seven years there. The number of people who are irreligious during that same time frame has doubled from 10 to 20%. So the implication is that people aren't just leaving the church, they're actually departing the faith that, they, that many of them grew up with. Are we merely attempting to survive? Right? Are, we, are we just thinking about it in terms of, look, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, let's just, let's just survive this onslaught of evil. Let's do our best to stay alive. If we can do that, we've, we've won. We're victorious. Is that the message of Revelation to you? Do we cower before the beast that empowers the secular culture? Revelation reminds us that we are not experiencing anything new 
or we're not in a culture that's vastly different. Right? There's new technology, but it's still idolatry. And in the big scheme of things, the church's conflict with the beast has, has pretty much remained steady. Generation after generation, the beast continues to pour this river of evil at the church, and the church is sustained by faith in Christ alone. Right? So our task has not changed. We are still called to fight the good fight of faith that Paul encouraged Timothy with. But we do so with every bit of confidence that Christ has already won the war. And so the heavenly reward of the redeemed is their eternal celebration of the victory of the Lamb. And that's what's portrayed in this passage. Right? This eternal celebration of our victory with the Lamb who was slain. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the encouragement of Revelation and of this passage in particular that reminds us of the victory of the Lamb, reminds us of, of what awaits us in glory. Lord, may it give us perseverance even now. May it strengthen us to endure the trials and tribulation that are sure to come. Maybe even the trials and tribulation that we are currently undergoing in our lives. Lord, may this vision of glory have an impact. May your spirit do a work as we read and meditate upon your word. As we trust in you, Lord, may we be transformed. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Let's read with me Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the Lord and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, the first point I want to make is just from the first verse there, the identity of the 144,000. Let's consider the identity of the 144,000. The last time that we saw this number, the lamb, or last time we saw the lamb, was standing before the throne in heaven. That was in chapter 7, verse 9. It was also right after the description of the 144,000 in that chapter who were standing in battle array. But the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion now with the 144,000. These are the conquerors who have God's name written on them. This 144,000 is the same group that's mentioned in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And the next time we'll see them, they're standing beside the Sea of Glass in chapter 15. Verse 2, which we know the sea of glass is before the throne of God. And so this is a heavenly scene that we're witnessing here. And it speaks of Mount Zion, 
but it speaks of the lamb standing with the 144,000. And so it's, a sim- it's symbolic of heaven. This image of the saints in glory has already been inaugurated. It's already begun. Right? The 144,000 builds in the same time frame as the beast is gaining disciples of his own throughout this present age. Right? Throughout this age, saints are justified, sanctified, and glorified as they join the ranks of the conquerors who have, the priv- who have been privileged to enter into their eternal rest. And we'll see that at the end of verse, uh, or in verse 13. We'll look at that next week, I hope. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So there's this idea of entering into their eternal rest and joining with this chorus, this 144,000 that is building in heaven. So what's the significance of Mount Zion? Well, it's, it's referred to throughout the Old Testament as God's dwelling place. But it also represents the people of God. Right? Zion is true Israel, the, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the ideal universal church. It, it represents the people of God in the presence of God. And so Mount Zion is, is no more literal here than the Lamb. Right? There's, there is a literal Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It's a hill just outside of the city wall. Um, and, and so some would say, well, no, Mount Zion, it's a, it's a real place, and the Lamb is going to be standing there with, the, with all the saints. But this is an image, once again, we're, 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 we're taken up into heaven with this vision. And Mount Zion is, is symbolic of the people of God in the presence of God. Right? It's no more literal than the Lamb is a literal Lamb. And we know that's a reference to Jesus. And it's no more literal than the 144,000 should be taken literally, as if everyone is numbered individually, and once, they, once that 144,000th individual joins the church, then it's, it's done, right? It's, it's, a, it's symbolic of the whole people of God. There is a, a final number, but it's far greater than 144,000. And so we're not to take that literal, we're not to take the lamb literal, nor are we to take Mount Zion literally. The whole scene is symbolic, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have purpose. Sometimes when I, when I say that the scene is symbolic, people think, oh, well, then it's just, it's just kind of a spiritual reality. It's not really, I mean, I, we, don't, we don't really need to consider it all that much. No, it's, it's actually the opposite. Because it's a spiritual reality, it's, it's extremely significant, and, and it's so significant that God is giving us physical forms, physical manifestations, visions that we can, we can look at and see the, the vivid character that God is wanting us to have, like the, the portrayal of heaven and the glory of heaven. Right? He wants to illustrate to us in vivid terms the sights and the sounds of heaven so that we might be encouraged. So yes, it's a, a lamb. It's the vision of a lamb standing as though he'd been slain back in chapter 5. It's the lamb that defeats the, the fierce dragon and his beasts. What is that meant to convey? It's the foolishness of the preaching of the cross that displays the power and wisdom of God. 
according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. God's strength is clearly seen through weakness. He takes these contrasting images of fierceness and darkness and ugliness and, a, and, and then of a lamb, a pl- of pleasant things and of good things, and he talks about one being victorious over the other. All right, well, it looks like certain defeat at the hands of the beast is flipped on its head in a moment, and what seems impossible for man is, is possible with God. Right? God has not only placed his mark of ownership upon us, he has sealed us for eternity. With, with the Lamb are standing the 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Again, we're not to literally think of this as a tattoo of Yahweh on our foreheads or of the Lamb. This is a representation of the seal that God has given us for all eternity. The seal of God's people provides a security that could never be offered by the beast to those who receive his mark. Notice the, the beast is always referred to as the mark, but it's the seal of God that's given to the saints. It represents more than just a mark, more than just a symbol. It's, the, it's his protection, and it's the strength of, that God has to, in fact, provide that protection. So we are promised his protection, and God has engraved our names in the palms of his hands, according to Isaiah chapter 49. So we are to set our minds on the things above. We recognize that Christ has seated us with him in the heavenly places. And when the pressures of this world and the flesh and the devil overwhelm us, we're called to look up. We're called to see ourselves standing with Christ on Mount Zion, standing in the heavenly places. Our revelation comforts us because it reminds us of our identity in Christ. Right, that we are triumphant with Him. And because we are standing with the Lamb, we are invited to join in the celebration. Right, by singing the song of the 144,000. And that's what's portrayed in verses 2 through 3. John hears this th- thunderous sound of the saints praising God and the Lamb. And the voice that John heard from heaven is this collective sound of 144,000 singing in unison. And their song is pleasantly accompanied by what literally reads in Greek, harpers or harpists harping on harps. It's harpists playing their harps on their harps. Harpists harping on harps. That's the sound. It's majestic. It's beautiful. And, and, it's, and I would say it's, it's even implied that they're accompanying the sound of the voices because it says in chapter 15, verse 2, when we see these saints again, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So we know harps are, are present in that sense. And again, this isn't meant to be taken so literally, but the idea is that there's this, this thunderous sound of voices of the saints singing with the accompaniment of beautiful instruments. But notice the overpowering instrument in this scene is not the harps, but the voice of the universal church choir. Right? They sing to the Lord with passion and power. 
it wasn't the performance of a few music- musicians in front of everyone, right? but it was the celebration of every saint that John hears. And so let us practice for that day every time we gather on Sundays. Right, the worship service is an opportunity to raise our voices to heaven. The guitar, the piano, the cajon, the tambourine, whenever those are involved, that's all meant to accompany you. It's not meant to drown out your voice. So your voices should be the loudest thing we hear every Sunday. Because it reflects the confidence that we have in the victory of the Lamb. Singing is about celebrating His victory. Right? As you read about the victory songs in, in, throughout Scripture, you, that's how the people responded, right? They're rescued out of Egypt. They cross uh, the sea and their, or the river, and they're, and they're singing. They're filled with song. They join in, in this glad adoration of God. And so we practice that every Sunday. We want the primary instrument of our worship to be the voices of the saints. And so I encourage you to sing loudly, sing confidently, sing with reverence and joy because your Savior reigns. And you might think, but I don't have a good voice. You don't want to hear me singing loudly. And I've, I've even said that myself. Right? You don't want to hear me. Turn off this mic. Right? I will ruin it for you. And that might be true. But right, with the mic off, I should be singing loudly because it's not about your voice. Right? It's not about the goodness of your voice. It's about the goodness of your Savior. And so we sing to him loudly because of his goodness. And as a child, I always thought I wanted to grow up to experience all of the, the great things that adults get to enjoy. And now that I'm an adult, I, it's like I can't wait to die. And you think, oh, that's morbid. No, I don't mean that in a morbid way. I'm not trying to speed up the process, I can assure you. I'm not doing anything to encourage death. But, but there's, there's something about death that I know brings a glory that I can never find in this life brings me to a level of joy and satisfaction that I am constantly striving for, even now. Kids, ask your parents if they've received, since coming to Christ, if they've received everything they ever wanted in life. And we, we oftentimes think that once we get there, once we have that, that perfect marriage, I'll be totally satisfied. And then what happens? We get there and we have that marriage and it's not everything we thought it would be. And I'm not talking about my own. It is everything I thought it would be. Or we think we're going to have, you know, one more kid and it's going to solve all of our problems. And then that kid arrives and, and it's not, it doesn't solve all your problems. Right? And we love our kids. I'm not saying we, you know, we, we despise our marriages or we despise our families. Not in any way. No, in fact, I'm excited to see my children grow up. I want to see, I want to marry them. You know, I want to marry them off to, a, to wonderful spouses and see them have, bring many grandchildren into our family, into our home. Right? That, that's exciting. But it, it cannot compare to the glory that awaits. Right? So maybe you think that you would like to experience more from this life before entering into glory. Maybe... 
Maybe the thought of singing forever doesn't quite excite you. And on the one hand, being a part of the greatest flash mob of all time is, is kind of cool. But, but you realize standing forever, that's going to probably get tiring. My voice might even give out after a few hours. You know, it's going to get old. Well, again, don't take everything so literally. The vision of saints singing on Mount Zion doesn't convey this endless activity as if that's the only thing you'll ever do for the rest of eternity is stand and sing. No, the, the idea is you're, you're celebrating his victory. Right? We're going to do other things while celebrating his victory in heaven. The point is not what we are doing, but who we are with and how he has changed us. Right? So we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb forever. And I love how one hymn writer puts it. In the hymn, O Christ, he is the fountain. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory, and my eternal stand. And that's what's conveyed here, is the victory of the lamb that we are resting in for all eternity. And Christ not only redeems us, but he purifies us for that day. That's what we find in verses 4 through 5. Maybe, maybe in reading it, you were thinking, whoa, that, that turned into an interesting direction. It's these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It's these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Well, throw out everything I've ever said about Revelation and just try to read this literally, wherever possible. How Lindsay assumes that that's how we're to read Revelation, literally, where possible. And so he confidently asserts that Mount Zion is the literal hill in Jerusalem, that the Lamb is Jesus Christ, and that the 144,000 are Jewish because of Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, saying that they're coming from the 12 tribes of Israel. But they're Jewish, and now because of this description, they have to also be male virgins who will convert to Christianity. He further suggests that these 144,000 will evangelize the rest of the world during the seven-year tribulation. And I think that's why reading Revelation according to its genre as apocalyptic literature, as prophecy, is so important. It's so critical for our understanding because... It's not literalism that we sh- should be our default interpretation. We should be reading symbolically. Right? That's the default mode. And so we have seen multiple times in Ezekiel alone references to harlotry or the whoredom of Israel, be, you know, their idolatry, their idolatrous worship being compared to harlotry. Reread, if you want, Ezekiel chapter 16 and 23. You'll see it over and over again there, the comparison of harlotry with idolatry. We'll see it as well in the reference to Babylon, even in this chapter, verse 8. Another angel, a second following, says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And Babylon will be referenced again multiple times in Revelation, all as a reference to idolatry. Right? It's, it's again giving this vivid portrayal 
of what it, what it looks like. Right? The experience of, of harlotry, undergoing that, that's, that's the shame of worshiping another god, of worshiping false gods, of entering into counterfeit worship. And so harlotry is an illustration, and in the same thing, uh, you'll see defilement as well. Right? They have not defiled themselves with women. That defilement is also typically referring to idolatry in the Old and New Testament. But here it's saying believers, this 144,000, they are the opposite. They are faithful disciples who belong to God because Christ was blameless and he, he himself is now presenting his bride as a pure virgin. Right, that was Paul's desire, a desire in his work with the Corinthians. Uh, we see the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 through 27. The work of Christ to present us as his pure virgin bride. Verses 26 through 27 of Ephesians chapter 5 says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It's, it's sacrificial language. It's language of the, uh, of the Old Testament sacrificial system where they had to find a, a lamb that was without spot or blemish. They couldn't offer the one that was limping to the Lord. They had to take their best and offer it to God. That's what, God is, that's what Christ is doing with his bride, the church. He's purifying us. He's washing us. He's making us fit for eternity. Right? The church will be symbolized as Christ's virgin bride in chapter 19 and 21. So virgin here is figurative, just like Mount Zion, just like the 144,000, just like the lamb. Right? Israel was often referred to in such language, portraying her loyalty to one God, to the one true God, Yahweh, as opposed to the polytheism of their neighbors. And so the reference then to first fruits may have to do with harvest language, as if the, it's the, implying the beginning stage of God's ingathering at the end of the age. And that's possible, but I think its association with that complete number, the 144,000, suggests a different use. It suggests first fruits in quality, not chronology. It's the, it's the best. It's the chosen. It's God's elect as represented here. Jeremiah refers to the whole nation of Israel as the first fruits of God's harvest. And so it's not always taken in chronological terms. So this passage, combined with chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, where the church is lined up in battle formation, uh, seems to be an allusion to holy war as well. And I don't mean that with any modern connotations of holy war, but, but you have this great army that's being gathered Right, this, this army that follows their captain wherever he leads. Right, they're following the Lamb. And now in heaven they are counted among the church triumphant. The church militant. These soldiers were faithful to remain pure. And that's in war, in, in the Old Testament, when, when the Israelites went out to war, they had to remain pure. Uh, they, they, they could not defile themselves. Right? And, and so they, if they did, they had to be right, taken out of the camp 
and spend time. So they were pulled out of the battle, out of the war. So they, they could not remain faithful to their brothers in the fight. And so the image here is the idea of, of remaining pure, of, a, of being a pure virgin. Right? And then in time, all the saints become holy and blameless in that way. Here the saints are seen in their glorified state of perfection, standing with the Lamb. They've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. So the church triumphant, it, it continues to grow throughout this age. God preserves them and brings them to himself forever. And if we are always worshiping someone or something, then we must be vigilant in mortifying the idols that cause our hearts to be divided, that distract us from true worship, that lead us into counterfeit worship. And William Cooper says, The, the dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Help me remove every idol from the throne of God that I continually place there. And and help me to only worship God. Genuine saints worship and follow the Lamb, and therefore they become like the Lamb. We've said this before. One of the ways that God transforms us is, is, or the way He transforms us is through worship. As we come to Him, as we worship Him in the right way. Thomas Watson says, justification does not have degrees. A believer cannot be more justified or elected than he is. But he may be more sanctified than he is. See, only in heaven will our sanctification be complete. Only there will we be free from the hindrance of sin forever. Only in heaven will we become the pure and spotless bride of Christ. That is the glory that awaits every true believer. It's the glory that motivates us to endure every trial and tribulation in this life. But until then, what do we read throughout the New Testament? Over and over again, we fight the good fight of the faith. We wrestle against this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We toil, struggling with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within us. We press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. We run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We strive to enter through the narrow door. We make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. All of those are not things I just made up. They all come from the epistles of the New Testament. And so I like how Michael Horton summarizes this. He says, on the basis of our freedom from the law's condemnation, we are able for the first time truly to love God and our neighbor. Right? We are enabled truly, not perfectly to love God and our neighbor, but to truly love God and our neighbor because of what Christ has done for us. He goes on to say, we are not what we will be, but we are not what we once were. And so we actively pursue hard after Christ, all the while looking forward by faith to the day when we will be standing with our Savior on top of Mount Zion in perfect glory. That's the glory that awaits every true saint. 
And so fight the good fight of faith until that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this vision from Revelation, this vision of the glory of heaven that awaits. And, and it does stir us up. It stirs me up. Lord, to love and good deeds, it stirs me up with gratitude for what Christ has done for us, the redemption that he has purchased by his blood. Lord, it equips me and it calls me to live differently, to forsake the idols that, have, that I've oftentimes turned to, that I continue to wrestle with. Lord, help me to to rip those from your throne and to worship only thee, as Cooper reminds us. Lord, you alone are worthy to receive our praise. And so enable us to give it to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.